Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Problem podcast. I'm Dr James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem? In this episode, I talk to Dr Melissa Oldham, a research fellow at University College London's Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group, about why alcohol consumption appears to have fallen amongst children and young people over recent decades. So thanks so much for joining me, Melissa. Can you tell us a bit about your research areas and how you got into this subject? Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm primarily interested in alcohol through a kind of public health or health psychology lens. And I originally started off when I was doing my PhD looking at appetite and obesity research. And I got interested in the world of alcohol because I just think it has such an interesting place in society. It's so ingrained in in our way of life in terms of marking celebrations or events, even kind of to the point where you have different kinds of beverage that are associated with different events. So is it a celebration if you don't have Prosecco? Are you upset and brooding if you're not drinking whiskey? And I just think it's that's really interesting. So I'm very interested in helping people who want to cut down on their drinking cut down. And part of the reason for that is because I think it's one of the only vices really where there's quite so many societal cues and, and peer pressure and things like that to carry on engaging in a behaviour. So I've got two primary research areas. So one, like I said, is looking at developing behavioural interventions to help people who want to reduce their alcohol consumption. And I'm particularly interested in looking at targeted interventions, so targeted to particular contexts in which people drink. And then the second research interest is in examining trends in youth drinking, which is more what we're going to be talking about today. And in terms of when you say targeted interventions, can you give some examples? You know, do you mean things like apps or yeah, so, well, there's a couple of things. So the one thing that I'm working on at the moment is we're running a trial looking at digital interventions to see how effective they are in helping people reduce their alcohol consumption. Uh, and actually, that is ongoing. So if people are interested in reducing their alcohol consumption, they can visit ideastrial.co.uk to learn more about that and to potentially sign up. And then there's this other side, which I'm increasingly getting interested in, which is kind of looking at the contextual factors of drinking occasions. So where people drink, who they're drinking with, and to try and essentially work out interventions that, that work for different people and different types of drinkers. Absolutely. I think that's so important that, you know, perhaps one of the limitations or big things that, you know, holds back things like the recommendations guidelines is that they don't take account of the huge number of different individual differences in in terms of the way in which people drink uh, their motivations and their environmental influences on that so that sounds really important and in terms of um, the digital interventions how would you class those generally sort of I mentioned apps but there's also web-based stuff um yeah, so there's lots of kind of different support tools out there. There's quite a lot of websites which offer different strategies and tips and hints. Uh, so there's the NHS website or there's Alcohol Change UK offer some tips on theirs as well. I think the apps are particularly helpful in terms of helping people track 
what they are drinking and to kind of set goals and to monitor progress against that, which we know is a really useful strategy to help people reduce their alcohol consumption. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of different ones. So I suppose it's very much people thinking about what, what they want and selecting one which works best for them. So, you know, we're kind of here really to talk about you know, what's been happening with changes in alcohol consumption over the last few decades. So, you know, famously, there's been significant decline in drinking, almost exclusively driven, isn't it, by younger people. So whilst we had a long period of overall rising consumption around 2004, that seemed to peak and then has, has kind of been declining, but driven by falls in, in kind of younger age groups. Can you tell me a bit more specifically? specifically about you know what's behind that and then some of the theories in terms of why maybe that's happening. Yeah, so as you said, we know that at a population level, youth drinking has declined quite substantially over the past 20, 30 years. So it's young people are drinking less. They often start drinking later. And when they do start drinking, they drink less frequently and they drink less per occasion. So it does seem to be you know, pretty consistent in that respect. What isn't completely clear yet and something that we've been doing some work upon is to to work out how consistent that is across all young people. So one possibility is that it decreases in consumption amongst kind of the light or moderate drinking majority of young people could actually mask maintained or increased consumption in those heavier drinking groups and we know there's this dose response relationship that alcohol has where the more people drink the more at risk they are so that is a concern and it's something that we we need to clarify so we have done a little bit of work in this area as I said and it seems like we do see a little bit of a divide by age so when we look at 11 to 15 year olds so these are kind of school age underage drinkers it does seem that the declines that we see at least in our kind of school samples are consistent so it seems that all young people lighter moderate and heavier drinkers are drinking less over time but this isn't necessarily the case for slightly older young people so when you look at 16 to 24 year olds there is some polarization in those trends so what I mean by polarization is that amongst lighter and more moderate drinkers we do see these declines over time. But amongst heavier drinkers, actually, we see either small increases or maintain consumption. So this is a bit of a concern because, as I say, we know that kind of the harms of alcohol are, are more likely in those heavier drinking groups. Um, and we think part of the reason for this differentiation is potentially because of people are partaking in different life trajectories or they've got different things going on. So in England, people leave school at 16 and they can go down quite different paths. They can either continue with education, um, A-levels and university, or, or they might get jobs. Um, they might go down to kind of a more vocational route in terms of training. Uh, and it's possible that these different lifestyles are associated with different drinking patterns. So for example, we know students are particularly heavy drinkers. But to go back to kind of that, that younger age group, which is kind Kind of where those declines are most focused. There's lots of different reasons that people give for why this might be happening. So the first one that everyone always asks you about at conferences and talks is uh, is drugs. So everybody always assumes that young people are just turning to drugs instead, and, and cannabis in particular is one that that comes up a lot. But the thing is that drug use or reported drug use amongst 11 to 15 year olds has has gone down in line with drinking. So it doesn't seem that young people are just shifting from alcohol to, to cannabis or to other drugs. It does seem that 
there's this very real decline across behaviours, particularly smoking as well, which has dropped really substantially. So to try and get into this a bit more, we've done some research at the University of Sheffield um, and my colleague Victoria spoke to young people themselves to talk to them about what they thought the reasons were and to try and kind of centre their voices in the debate. And in actual fact, the, the reasons that they kind of gave and spoke about overlap a lot with those which are typically discussed in research. So I think two things that came out of those conversations and, and other research papers, which I think are really interesting and, and overlap quite a lot, are around access and also parental approach. So we know that regulations uh, with the introduction of Challenge 21 and Challenge 25 policies, and it's much harder for young people to access alcohol now. And in fact, when you look at these kind of big national surveys, we know that where most people or most underage drinkers get their alcohol from is, is, it, is actually their parents. And one possible explanation for the decline is that this increase in focus on parental supply is being used as a kind of strategy of damage limitation. So it's possible that parents will give their kids a little bit of alcohol, a smaller amount or, you know, weaker alcohol. So they might be more likely to buy them a few beers to try and avoid them going and finding a bottle of spirits from elsewhere, which is, you know, you get drunk much quicker and is more more likely to experience harms potentially. That makes sense. Also, parental attitudes have probably shifted. You know, I think that over the last 20 years, we have seen a bit of a shift, a positive shift in terms of recognising alcohol a bit more as a potentially harmful drug. It's way behind the curve in terms of smoking, but we are starting to see, I think, that positive shift, this kind of media and broader conversation, I think, has really picked up. So I suppose the tightening of parental control on children's access to alcohol, I think, does make sense in that context. But also, you know, very anecdotally, I was a teenager in the 90s and you know it was certainly very easy to get alcohol from off licenses in particular and I don't think that's the case now I think there has definitely been a big tightening up of accessing alcohol directly from shops but as you say yeah it's that kind of home route fire kind of parental supply whether whether it's people kind of helping themselves behind their parents backs or, or whether it's as you say a kind of more deliberate or controlled direct feed and that comes in as well to to where they're drinking it so again if you kind of look at these big data sets and you look at the trends in the locations people report they are also increasingly report drinking at home at their own or another's home so again anecdotally but when I was younger we definitely drank more without our parents permission and we used to drink in public places in the park sorry to my mum who will definitely listen to this at some point um, but yeah I definitely think there's been a shift in that and, and young people now are, are drinking at home and I think that's again I think it is probably this approach of damage limitation I think it feels to me as though there's kind of more threat around young people in public places and perhaps more concern about other risks and if they're intoxicated than being more vulnerable to those kind of things. So I think it, in terms of people keeping their kids in their own house and kind of giving them a little bit of alcohol, you can understand why parents would kind of go down that route. Yeah, again, I think that's maybe a bit of a reflection of the cultural shift that now, alcohol was, uh, and obviously to some degree still is seen as a bit of a rite of passage of growing up that, you know, when you're young, you party and have fun and that 
you know, invariably involves alcohol for many people. You know, part of that shift is maybe just towards bringing that into a bit more of a balance in terms of recognising that actually there are very significant risks and dangers to it, not just in terms of personal safety, but, you know, we know more about the negative effect of alcohol use on, on the adolescent developing brain. But in terms of that giving alcohol to children, you know, again, a lot of parents will say, well, it's better that I kind of train my children to drink alcohol responsibly. But I don't think that really stacks up. I mean, yes, there is. It's true that it's better that they're in a supervised environment with, where parents are seeing it. But the sort of idea of teaching people to drink responsibly, I think, is is kind of flawed in lots of ways, not least just because of the, the negative effect of, of alcohol on an adolescent brain. But, you know, again, it goes back to what you're looking at in terms of the context, you know, drinking responsibly or, you know, to, to use a better term, drinking sort of moderately or low risk with your parents doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to do that when they're not there. Definitely. I think that's, it is really interesting. I know um, there's a, a charity called Balance in the Northeast and they've done a lot of work with parents uh, in that region where that that's something that they were hearing a lot is we're teaching them to drink so that they exactly carry on doing that responsibly. And I do think that is Although you can understand it, I do think it's quite flawed logic because we know that, you know, the younger young people start to drink and, and the more they drink does predict what they drink later. So I think trying to speak to children about alcohol is is certainly a good idea and to discuss with them, you know, the benefits and, and the negatives of it. But yeah, whether you actually take that to training them to drink, I think is is a different story. Yeah, it's complicated. And what about the sort of pro-social modelling or, or, you know, influence in terms of parents' own relationship with alcohol? There was some theories that the fall in drinking was because younger people didn't want to be like their parents who, you know, kind of a boozy generation. But then actually the evidence suggests that kids with parents who drink more are more likely overall to to end up drinking problematically. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I think it's long waves theory, which says that essentially different generations rebel against what came before them. And it kind of goes both ways. And I think the kind of ladette culture of the 90s was kind of in retaliation almost to those kind of more premiers that have come before. Um, and there are people who, who yeah, suggest that the, the decline in consumption now is in response to not wanting to be like their parents and, and wanting to do their lives differently. And I definitely think for some people, you do see that. So to go back to those interviews with young people, you know, some, some people did talk about parents who had heavy drinking at home and how that had put them off drinking themselves because they didn't want to get into those habits. But as you say, I think overall, the relationship is there that if you are a heavier drinking parent, there's more chance that the children will go on to to drink more heavily as well. So how much that actually stands up at a population level, I'm, I'm not sure. And it's also so difficult to, you know, separate those confounding effects of heavy drinking parents, you know, are, you know, is it, is there a direct influence of seeing your parents drink more and it's kind of normalizing the idea of alcohol consumption or is it because parents who drink more like most people who drink more have a wider range of other issues you know mental health problems stress lower socioeconomic status etc you know it's just so hard to untangle all those kind of possible contributors yeah, absolutely. And the data is, is not great either in terms of linking, you know, the, the adult data with the with the child's data to, to really unpick 
those issues and to and to get at it so mm. yeah and what about um you know, the, this massive shift in terms of digital and social media you know obviously as you said a lot of people say probably they're not quite right in saying oh well you know they're probably just using drugs instead but you know this idea that that social media you know via a number of possible routes has has contributed to, to drinking less what are the sort of main ideas behind that and do they stack up yeah so it's such an interesting one so one thing to note with the declines are that they are very widespread so they're also seen in australia north america and europe so you know it's it's doesn't really stack up to say that it comes down to one discrete thing but i do think there have been such changes to people's lives in terms of social media and the effect that that's had on kind of norms and cultures for different age groups. And I do think that that is probably one of the big influences. So there's lots of research on it, but the problem that we have is that social media is such a vast and amorphous concept. It's really difficult to study. So when I was growing up, we had um, MySpace and Bebo and that was about it. Whereas now there's all these different different platforms. So Instagram, there's TikTok, Weibo, there's probably a hundred much cooler ones that I've never even heard of. Um, so it's so hard to kind of, to get at what effect that has because the different platforms will attract different kinds of groups and, and young people. So we do have some studies which suggest that young people who use social media more are more likely to drink more. And a couple of kind of the, the mechanisms that people think might explain that is because they might be more exposed to marketing. So there's a lot of social media marketing around alcohol. Or it could be that those groups who are using social media more are generally more sociable, have more friends and more likely to go to parties. Whereas there's other studies which have shown kind of the reverse of that so that people who use social media more or have less face-to-face contact with their friends and more online contact actually drink less um so you just it's very difficult to quantify exactly the effect that that's had but i do think in terms of thinking more generally about social media and and the influence that that has had it kind of young people now i would say are a lot more aware of you know the world outside of their own and other things that are going on. And there's this kind of idea in social media of of living your best life and and showing your best life, whether that's representative of your actual life or not. And I think that that's one thing that young people don't want to be seen to just be drunk every weekend, or they, they want to engage in kind of these different exciting activities, whether that's art and cultural activities or whether it's more sports. So I think that kind of lens has has adjusted alcohol's position in young people's lives and it's not got the same kind of focus as maybe it once did. I think that's so relevant because, you know, it's it's related to, isn't it, the, what we've seen in terms of positive sobriety or sober lifestyles or however it's best described. Again, it's hard to say t- to what extent that might be um, kind of a reflection or a driver of of kind of falls in youth drinking but you know there is a really strong you know certainly social media presence uh around these kind of more as you say lifestyle or living your best life type lenses in which kind of not drinking has has really become predominant and you know we can could name lots of different movements or influencers who who kind of um, maybe embody that but um yeah do you have any thoughts on how that might be as 
connected or yeah I think it it is really interesting you see so there was some research that was done in Australia and they found actually that young people talked about kind of authenticity when they were talking about alcohol and I think some work that was done you know in the 90s showed that people kind of used alcohol as a way to to be more themselves and to loosen their, their inhibitions and to to be who they really were whereas young people at least in that study kind of talked about alcohol as as doing the opposite of that and they thought actually that not relying on alcohol where they might get a bit silly or they might say things that they they didn't mean they thought it was actually better to kind of be sober and be true to to themselves and their personality so I thought that was really interesting and when you look at university students now I think university students are a particular group that are kind of synonymous with this really heavy drinking culture but you do see groups of students who are really going against that and they kind of have this identity almost that's that's formed by their abstinence or at least is kind of what links them and they kind of champion doing different activities that on where the focus is in alcohol so I think there was a group that did a lot of um like rollerblading and, and things like that to try and kind of get away from those traditional kind of socialization activities yeah it's so interesting and I think we know from addiction recovery research that drug or alcohol use can be you know really important or really significant part of your your social identity so recovery is often marked by this big shift in identity in terms of how you know you kind of perceive yourself you know which when you're maybe in the height of um, substance use or addiction you know that's a big part of who you are and you frame it maybe you know by focusing on the positives and that's supported by your, your social networks but equally when people have kind of rejected that and moved into recovery the same happens but you know in reverse so I think you know there's so much to be said about that because alcohol is such, has such a prominent place in society you almost have to set out your stall in terms of what your relationship is with alcohol in so many different social contexts you know do you drink or are you a not a non-drinker and if so you kind of well, there's a lot of pressure or expectation for people to kind of mark that or kind of communicate or signal it in in some ways and I think for me that's a bit of the problem with um the kind of you're either abstinent or you're you're not type idea because you know there's lots of people who might cut down or moderate their drinking but that's quite a difficult or absent identity in the kind of general culture that you know people can't as Adrian Charles says they can't quite compute the idea of moderation so you have to kind of set your stall out as either an abstinent or a kind of drinker of some sort. I think it's just so much more grey as well that kind of moderation element and it I do feels to me as though it's more open to to peer pressure and people kind of saying oh come on come out or if you're there or why are you having lime and sodas come on have a beer don't be a wuss and that that kind of attitude whereas I think if someone is kind of has this identity as no I don't drink at all I'm sure they do experience some some peer pressure but I imagine you know after a while people would be less likely to do that perhaps yeah I think I mean that certainly from my own experience that you know I didn't drink for eight years and the the challenges in terms of peer pressure were quite different but similar in some ways so in some cases you you were just obviously ostracized for not drinking at all Mm. Um, but your stall was very clear you weren't going to drink and nothing was going to change that but I think in both you kind of develop strategies to manage those situations so you know as a moderate drinker you can fit in or blend in with heavier drinkers if you need to and just pay 
pace yourself as long as you avoid buying rounds or so yeah i kind of agree it's yeah again it depends so much on on the context and the individual and, and the motivations I suppose the other thing about kind of that moderate drinking, and I mean, I'm talking about this from a personal perspective, is once I've had a couple of drinks, I think I'm definitely more susceptible to having a couple more. So I think that would kind of be, I mean, obviously that's in kind of a more social context, but I think I would definitely be firmer at the start of a night that I was only going to have two pints, say, than I would be by the time I'd had those two pints if people were, you know, saying, I'll go and have another one. Well, that marries up with the sort of evidence in terms of succeeding at controlled drinking or moderation. You know, it really does rely on having very clear boundaries, which you, they're not really up for negotiation, if you like. But at the same time, you know, when I started moderate drinking, I was crystal clear about what those boundaries are. And now I've just kind of relaxed a bit because I know, you know, I've just got used to and my social networks and my identity and the expectations on me aren't so great to kind of pressure me to drink more, if you like. Um, so in terms of these falls in youth drinking, are there any other kind of key factors that we haven't touched on that may be contributing to this? So we've kind of talked about um, changes in parental styles, um, possible roles of social media and drugs and these changing social norms maybe and identities. Yeah, I think one thing that came out um, of some of the research, which I think is really interesting, is that young people are more future focused. So I think this is partly to do with disposable income and and the economy and, and all those kind of elements. But there is this sense amongst young people that they really need to spend their time doing schoolwork and and getting to a point where they'll go to university or they'll go down a different path, but they'll have a good job at the end of it. And they, young people certainly think of themselves as being more future focused than previous generations um, in, in interviews with them. And I think that is really interesting because you do see there a difference between different socioeconomic status groups. So that kind of attitude and outlook is is definitely more prevalent amongst the kind of higher SES or the more well-off groups. So how much of that is kind of being driven by parental influence or or those kind of elements, I'm, I'm not sure, but that is definitely something which, yeah, there does seem to be a discrepancy there. And I can't help but wonder, you know, there's a lot of worrying figures about kind of mental health issues that, that younger people are facing overall. And, you know, I can't help but think that so much of that is linked to the pressures that young people face and the uncertainties they face about, you know, what kind of job that they might possibly be able to get or what kind of career, because those opportunities just seem to be diminishing in, in kind of longer term. Absolutely. I mean, with the effect of COVID-19 and, and the lockdown. Uh, on inequalities are just are already huge and are the worrying thing is that it probably will just make them more ingrained and just have such a long-term impact if you look at kind of the data young people are one of the groups who are citing kind of the most negative effects to their well-being and and like you say a big part of that is because the uncertainty about where they're going to be and the the opportunities they're going to have what's going to happen with schoolwork and and university and all those elements where it's you know it's obviously it's an incredibly worrying time for for everybody but I think at least if you're kind of set in a career path or you've you've got a job and you've got experience then perhaps it doesn't feel quite as world altering so I have two sisters um one 16 and one 18 so one started uni during the pandemic and and one who's kind of going through the process of 
A-levels and the disruption to them has been absolutely enormous. They've had exams cancelled, you know, school's on and then it's off again. Um, They're encouraged to go to halls and then they're encouraged not to. And it's just affected kind of every element of, of their lives. So you can completely understand why young people are experiencing all these negative effects. Absolutely. It's, it's so worrying. And I do think, you know, as well as the older groups who are particularly vulnerable in health terms, I really just feel for the, for the younger people, you know, thinking back about how important my social life was to me in my younger years. Um, and so, you know, we discussed a bit about, uh, we fessed up about uh, our, some of our past drinking in parks and whatnot. But um, did you attempt to dry January? And if so, what was the, the sort of experience you had with it? Um, yeah, so I did do dry January, actually. Well it, <laughs> it's normally forbidden because um, my best friend, it's her birthday in January. So I'm never normally allowed to do it. But I took the opportunity of social isolation this year to do it. And actually, I must say, I, I've, I've quite enjoyed it. So... I would say that I I like a drink and, you know, I sometimes perhaps drink too much. And I think particularly over Christmas, because I live in London and I wasn't able to kind of go home and see family. Um, Don't get me wrong, I'll put my violin away because we did have a lovely time. But um, it was, we definitely kind of got into the habit of, of drinking more while we had a bit of time off over Christmas. So I think it kind of got to that point where January started and we thought it was quite a good opportunity and to, to stop for a while. Um, And I thought I'd struggle a lot more than I have. Um, But I suppose for me, I'm quite a social drinker. I like going out with friends and I like going to the pub. So had those elements been there, perhaps I would have struggled a lot more with it. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's interesting because on our, our previous episode on the effect of the pandemic, one of our, our guests said that uh, she found not drinking a lot easier because she knew the pubs were closed. So I must say there was one night, I can't remember what we were watching now, but we were watching something and, and someone handed someone a glass of whiskey and I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a drink. And then and then I remembered <laughs> that I was doing it. But that was one of the only times really that I've felt like that craving. But yeah, I do think it would definitely be different if I was more of a more of a home drinker. Yeah, it's interesting because, and again, in the previous episode, Emily and Dom, who did some research, you know, found that people, that some people that they spoke to locked down and the change in circumstances actually triggered this kind of reflective process and to really carefully evaluate, you know, what does it mean if I'm drinking at home and what are my reasons for doing that? And yeah, so, so I suppose that it is a, such an outlier this year, assuming that, God forbid, we'll be <laughs> in some form of lockdown again next January. But, um, but, yeah. but yeah, again, it goes back to your kind of work around the context. It's, it's just so significant, isn't it? All those different environmental and social factors that influence our, our drinking motives. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually, um, I started a paper, drafting a paper, which looks at kind of the differences between people who are doing dry January this year compared to, to last year. So kind of the different drinking characteristics and socio-demographic groups that are kind of more engaged with it perhaps this year or less engaged with it this year. So I think that will be really interesting because as you say, it's just absolute catastrophic changes to people's lifestyles and routines. So um, we know that, you know, the pandemic and the lockdown have had a polarising impact on drinking where some people are drinking more, some people are drinking less. So I think it would be really interesting to see those groups who are kind of engaging with Dry January perhaps for the first time this year. 
And so in terms of thinking forward about youth drinking and, and the trends, I think there's some evidence that young people in, in sort of Britain still drink more than the European average. So even though overall the the decline is, is really positive. Certainly in terms of like 11 to 15 year olds, you wouldn't want to see any drinking amongst those groups. But um, do you have a sense of how, where we might kind of go from here, what might happen with those trends or how we might best be thinking about kind of taking some of those lessons into maybe think about how we can achieve reductions in drinking amongst other age groups where there haven't been those falls, but also there's some very harmful drinking patterns and, and consequences. Yeah, it's really interesting. So in terms of Great Britain's kind of position, in, t- in terms of Europe, at least, we have actually changed quite a lot. So I think we used to be one of the worst, perhaps even the second worst around 2002. So this is adolescent drinking. And actually, the declines in kind of youth drinking are bigger in Great Britain than in, than in other places. So we've actually, we're not quite as bad as we used to be when you kind of look at cross-country comparisons. But definitely there are still, you know, there's still too much drinking amongst particularly 11 to 15 year olds where, like you say, you you wouldn't want to see any really because they are so vulnerable to kind of the negative effects. Um, I mean, nobody really knows what's going to happen with the, with the trends. So one thing we have seen in the last three or four years is actually those declines are leveling off. Um, at least in England or the UK. Um, so they seem to kind of have got to a point and, and now they're just being maintained. So whether that will, you know, stay at a stable level or whether it could potentially start creeping back up again, nobody's really sure. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are kind of so invested in understanding what's driven the decline so that we can kind of capitalise on that and, and encourage further declines. And I think it's really interesting, you know, when you think about different age groups, because certainly traditionally, and, you know, in terms of media coverage, I think most people would have this idea that that young people are, you know, the problem group. They're the ones going out every weekend and, and getting drunk and falling out of bars and having fights and all, all those kind of elements. But actually, when you look at kind of trends in alcohol consumption, the increases in consumption and the kind of heavy, harmful consumption a lot of the time is is happening in middle age groups. And it's not necessarily that people are going out all the time, but it's it's drinking at home. And we think a lot of that is because there's kind of increasing availability of, of cheap alcohol sold at all hours of the day in, you know, most shops that you go in. And it's just so available. So people kind of fall into these habitual drinking patterns where they have, you know, a bottle of wine a night or a few times a week. And and that's actually, you know, really quite harmful over a period of time and is much higher than the guidelines suggest is is a safe or at least low risk level. Absolutely. And I think, again, in the previous episodes, I think that reflects the a lot of the discussion where many people sort of working in the alcohol field feel that, that it's practical, pragmatic or desirable to try and shift that balance so that more consumption, more drinking takes place in regulated environments and, and pubs and, you know, away from the home home environment, which is so unregulated. And a lot of people say that there's far less checks and, and boundaries on on their kind of drinking and, and it's so easy to do just on a regular basis. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of favour in the alcohol field on the whole 
or a lot of recognition for, yeah, just not labelling pubs as, as bad places, but rather the, a kind of an opportunity for less harmful drinking patterns to emerge as can much more easily occur in, in kind of home contexts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, it's been really, really good. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast, so please feel free to follow us or get in touch there.